1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first seven verses. Uh, It's a letter. Uh, You may remember, if you've been before, that Paul writes to a young planter, Timothy, uh, a young pastor, rather, uh, who's in the city of Ephesus and is trying to uh, put in place the things needed to get the church on a stable footing. The church has existed for a number of years, but it's a little bit on on the wonk. So Timothy is being told by Paul the Apostle uh, what he needs to do uh, to firm things up. So verse 1 of 1 Timothy 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Samuel Zweymer was a a missionary uh, from the USA uh, to what was then Arabia, various countries that now make up uh, the Middle East. He was one of the first to go into countries that were, well, firmly given uh, to Islam. Uh, He went, as I say, at the back end of the 19th century, at a time when he couldn't just hop on a plane and come home. Uh, He went, not sure that he would ever return. He went not sure for that matter, that he would live. Uh, He's one of those guys, when you read his biography, you read his story, you you just think, wow. As Vemer said this, it's far easier to give of our substance to the missionary cause or to go in person than it is to truly pray for the kingdom. This is a guy who in the 19th century got on a ship and went to a place he knew not at all. And he says, it's far easier to give, our subs- to give our money to the missionary cause or to go in person than it is to truly pray for the kingdom. What do you think of that? Is that encouraging? Is that ring true? If, if I just stood up and said that this morning, you know, I think that, well, you might roll your eyes. But coming from Zweymer, someone who actually did it at a time when it was even harder than it is today, It's pretty striking, isn't it? Uh, Prayer is incredibly hard. We know we should do it. And yet we find it incredibly difficult. difficult. Doubly so if it's not prayer for something that's stressing me out right now. We get ill, we're quite good at praying for ourselves to be healed. We're worried about our children, we're good at praying that they would be looked after. But, But if it's prayer for things that, well, frankly, right now are not going to affect me. Prayer as Zweymer says, for the missionary cause, pray that the gospel would go out to all nations. How much can we honestly say it's on our agenda? Verse 1 of 1 Timothy 2. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. First of all. Now, when he says first of all there, it's not the first thing he's doing in the letter. Uh, He's already given one urging. Uh, If you look at chapter 1 and verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain 
and tell certain people not to teach false doctrines. So this is the second thing in the letter that Paul has urged. So when he says, first of all, it's likely what he means is, most importantly. Okay, of first importance, I'm telling you as a church, if you want to be on a stable footing, if you want to be a true household of God, remember that key verse in chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul says, I've written this whole letter, so you'll know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church. If you want to be a faithful household, says Paul, first importance, get everything else wrong, get this right, pray. And that's what these supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings are. If it's really going to be God's house, it's going to be a house of prayer. Now, if you know the Gospels, that probably shouldn't be a huge surprise. Do you remember Jesus, he goes into the, the temple and drives out those who are selling animals for sacrifices and changing money and all the rest of it. He says, you've turned my house into a den of thieves. But what did he say the house was meant to be for? It was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. And you turn it into a den of thieves. That the temple, as it stood in Jerusalem, the giant building, was meant to be a, a, a house of prayer for the nations. And yet God's people had turned aside from that primary importance. So we're going to think this morning uh, with Paul about the, the centrality, the importance of prayer. Uh, and uh, particularly how it's, it's empowered by right understanding of God and of Christ. Uh, right back at the first verse of the letter, as Paul began this letter, he introduced us, chapter 1, verse 1, to uh, himself as Paul, who's an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and Christ Jesus our hope. That They're both unusual ways of describing God and Jesus. It's not often that God is called our Saviour, but he is in 1 Timothy, both at the beginning and in verse 3 of the passage we read today. And Jesus as our hope, again, an unusual way of describing Christ. And it seems to me that Paul, right at the beginning, is making the Ephesians sit up and listen. That's an unusual way of describing God and Christ, because it's only when they understand properly who God is and who Christ is that life will fall into place. It's only when they see that their master, their Lord, that they'll be able to put his house straight. So let's think first about our duty. Our duty. Verse 1 and 2, our duty our duty is pray for all. Very simple, pray for all, our duty. Down there in verse 1, we read these different terms, supplications, prayers, intercessions. Uh, I'm not sure that we're meant to sort of work out exactly what each one means as if they're different types of prayer. It's possible, and some have tried to do it, but I think Paul is probably just heaping up words for prayer. There are different types of prayers, obviously. Uh, we try and reflect those in the service. So we'll usually begin the service on a Sunday with what has come to be called a prayer of invocation, calling on God. And Lord God, come and help us, feed us, meet with us. And we'll then have a prayer of thanksgiving or, or praise, where we don't ask for anything particularly. We're just telling God how great he is in some way. Uh, almost every week we'll have a prayer of confession. We read a psalm this morning, didn't we? Psalm 143. And then we'll pray uh, the, the part of the section... The, the service that we often think of as the prayers, which is what Paul here, I think, is calling intercessions, that the prayers where we ask God for stuff, ask God to, uh, to bless our evangelistic events or ask God to help those in need or whatever it might be. Uh, the Bible, as it presents its, in its fullness, has a whole diet of prayer. Uh, just like when you eat, uh, you want to eat all sorts of different foods to keep yourself healthy. Well, so in prayer, there are different types of prayer, we might say, uh, that keep our prayer life healthy. I'm not sure 
here exactly, though, whether you can work out the difference between a supplication and an intercession. Rather, Paul's point is, there just ought to be prayer everywhere. That's why he piles up the words. First importance, pray, 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 pray. The emphasis, rather than on the, the, the different types of prayer, is on who you're praying for. Do you see that in verse 2? And the end of verse 1 as well? Prayer is to be made for all people. Prayer for all people. He repeats it again. Uh, this word, all people, all people, three times in the passage. It's there in verse 4, and it's there in verse 6. Now, what does he mean? Okay, what is your duty as a Christian? Is it to pray for all people, literally, sort of individually? So, children, it, 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 uh, you've probably never seen a phone book, actually, have you? Uh, in the olden days, we used to have these things called phone books, okay, before people had mobile phones and the like, and it would land on your doorstep, uh, about once a year, it was about that fat, and it listed everybody's phone numbers who lived near you, uh, everyone's name, and it was alphabetical. So you could start, and Aaron Archer would be the first name, and then Abigail Asquith, and then Barry Barber, and then by the time you get to the end, Zinedine Zidane, um, you, you've got through all the people in your neighbourhood. Does Paul mean that we need to sit down, we're meant to sit down, start with, with Aaron, and finish with Zinedine? Is it our duty to pray for every individual in the world? Well, well no. How do we know that? Well, the obvious point is, it would literally be impossible, seven-something billion people on the earth. We're never going to pray for all of them individually by name. But, but also, I think the context helps us here. The context uh, Paul is writing into is one where certain teachers have begun to say, well, if you want to be really part of God's household, it's all about your heritage. Uh, it's all about your genealogy. Do you remember back in chapter 1 and verse 4, these teachers that, that Timothy is told to basically get rid of, in verse 4 of chapter 1, devote themselves to myths and genealogies. Genealogies like family trees. These guys had the family tree on the wall. You came into their house and had dinner with them, and you'd better trace their name up the generations, and mysteriously they'd be the great-great-great-grandson of Isaiah or Daniel or Moses or whoever it might be. And that showed they were really in God's household. Paul says, no, 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 it's nothing to do with that Uh, in chapter 1. You're part of God's people if you believe the gospel. So so Paul is writing into a situation where there is a bunch of people trying to to, to make the gospel and make the church exclusive. It's only for a certain type of people. And so I think in chapter 2, he's simply saying, look, pray for all sorts of people, all types of people. That's what the all means there. It's reminiscent, actually, uh, of his commission. Uh, You might remember Paul was not, didn't grow up a Christian. In fact, he grew up persecuting the church. Uh, Let me read to you from Acts 22. No need to turn to it particularly, but Acts 22, uh, Paul is converted He becomes a Christian, having been uh, lending his hand to the killing of Christians before that. And the man called Ananias, who meets him and who explains to him what God wants him to do, says this. Do you hear the echoes? Uh, You will be a witness for him, for Christ, to all people of what you've seen and heard. When Paul is commissioned, he's told he's going to be a witness to all people. Does he mean Paul's going to talk to every single person, human being in the world? No. The remarkable thing about Paul, and he emphasises this time again and again in his ministry, is he doesn't just go to the Jews, God's people historically, but goes to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, all types of people. So Paul is saying, just as the gospel is for all people, so we pray for all types of people. He gives examples of those which pray for kings, for those who are in high positions. 
But I don't think the kings and those in authority are the particular emphasis necessarily, not the kind of main point. Uh, verse 2, in a sense, is a bit of a, a sidetrack to his overall point. Uh, he wants to pray. He wants us to pray for those in authority, certainly. Uh, so we're to pray for the prime minister, pray for the lead city council. And pray in particular, if you look at verse 2, that they would rule in a way that allows us to live the kind of radical, risk-taking life that Paul wants. See verse 2? Have you ever read those books, been to those conferences, heard those messages online? To be a true Christian, you've got to be radical. You've got to live life on the edge. You've got to be a risk taker. Look at verse 2. What does Paul want? He wants you to be able to lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. Paul is going to sell zero books in the Christian bookstore. And none of his records are going to sell. But Paul's the apostle. A quiet life. A peaceful life. That's what he wants for you. Godly, certainly. And dignified. At times we can get exhausted by the the kind of pressure put on us sometimes by the wider Christian world, maybe even by church itself, I hope not, but possible, uh, to be sold out for God in such a way that you're always living life on the edge. Everything is a risk. Everything is radical. I'm not entirely sure that's what the New Testament teaches. Now, of course, we're to be 100% committed to God. Don't mishear me. It's not that Christianity is meant to be a kind of hobby or something we get into on a Sundays and ignore the rest of the week. No, no, far from it. We're 100% committed. Of course we are. But the kind of talk nowadays that you get about being radical is not stuff I can really see in the scriptures. I've got a friend who leads a church plant elsewhere, I won't say where, elsewhere in the country. He's a good friend. Uh, he's much more engaging than I am. But anyway, he's put together these, these church plant values. So to be part of the church plant, one of the things you've got to sign up to is the statement, we will never insult God with small dreams or safe living. Okay, so you can't be part of Christchurch Central Leeds if, you, if, if you've got small dreams or you live safely. Okay, how many of us would be ruled out by that? How many of us would have to pretend that we've got huge dreams just to sort of sneak in? Again, this is not turning down our dedication to God, but rather Paul's hope is that the rulers rule in a way that the church can get on leaving a godly life. In order that, well, in order that, verse 4, people might come to the knowledge of the truth. People might be saved. Now, we'll look at God's character in just a moment. But, but even at this stage, let, let me ask a couple of questions. Uh, first of all, about our convictions. Could we honestly say that Christ at Central is a, is a house of prayer, a household of prayer? Uh, when you see the prayer meeting is coming around in, in the church calendar once a month, uh, what do you think? Oh, that's the week to miss small group. That's the week to stay at home. Oh, I'm not really the praying type. I don't like speaking out loud. I, or, or do you see it as one of the first importance of what we're here to do. Now, I know some people don't like praying out loud in prayer meetings that you get nervous. That, that's fine. But you can still be there praying along. But when it comes to the prayers in the services, how do you find those? Often I think people, we find that the hardest part of the service. Uh, whoever's up front is leading the prayers, be they that prayer of praise or that uh, prayer of confession or, or the prayers of intercession and, and our minds are wandering. We're, we're a million miles away. It, it's, it's kind of padding time until we get to sing again 
or perhaps listen to the sermon. That's the main thing. But interestingly, in 1 Timothy, Paul doesn't talk about preaching until chapter 4. And that's when he gives Timothy's instructions, at least, about what he's meant to do with his preaching. He never talks about singing. He does elsewhere, and it's a good thing. But first of all, pray. That's one of the reasons why the prayers are longish at Christchurch Central. Now, they're not long compared to many traditions and many places in the world you'd go, and they are five, ten times longer than we do on a, on a Sunday. Uh, but equally, I've been to church services where the prayers last 30 seconds. I'm not sure that reflects this desire of Paul, ultimately of the Holy Spirit, that first of all, prayers be offered. So are we a house of prayer? That's asking about our convictions. Uh, both at church or even at home, husbands, would that describe your home, your marriage, the way you lead your children? Uh, could you say, look, we're not great at singing together, if I'm honest. I'm not great at DIY. Uh, I mess up the cooking and the cleaning, but one thing we do do is pray, pray, pray. We are a family at prayer. It is actually the one thing we can do. Sometimes we struggle, we open the Bible and we, we think, well, I need to teach the Bible to my children. And I, I sort of don't know what this passage means. I find that we're reading through Luke's gospel with our children at the moment. And there are times you read it and you think, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> or at least I certainly don't know how to explain that to a four-year-old. But what can you do? You can pray. Paul is challenging our convictions. And also, I, I guess, challenging the content of our prayers. Are our prayers, are my prayers, just about me and my family? Just about the things that are high up my to-do list or high up my these are stressing me this week list? Or am I offering prayers for all people, for all nations, for all types of people? When we pray on a Sunday for, as we did earlier, for, for Kip and Rachel Cheleshaw in uh, Nairobi. Is that just a bit of a duty? Better tick them off the list? No, it's part of what we're here to do. Part of the reason that God in his sovereignty got Christchurch Central planted was so that we would pray for Kip and Rachel in Nairobi. See that? He didn't just get us planted so we could reach Leeds, although he did. He didn't just get us planted so we could pastor and shepherd one another safely home, although he did. Part of the reason, in fact, one of the first of all reasons, was so that we could pray for Kip and Rachel. And the folk in Inverness and, well, all people. So our duty is pray for all. But, but it's as if Paul knows it's difficult. It's not Samuel Zweymer, the missionary, who first realised that prayer was hard. And so he gives us two motivating factors, two, two, if you like, two things to focus on that will fuel our prayers, help us to pray. First of all, in verse three to four, we get God's desire. So our duty is to pray for all. God's desire is for all to be saved. Verse three, this is good, praying. And it's pleasing in the sight of God, our saviour, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You begin to see a little bit of the content of the prayer, don't you? He desires everybody to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what God really wants. And straight away, let me stop and ask the question. Do you see that as the character of God? Do you look at God and see a God who wants people to be saved, who wants people in his kingdom, who wants to extend his household, who wants you in heaven? A God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, to use a phrase from elsewhere. I ask it of yourself, if you're sort of worried about your own salvation, your own status before God, 
Paul says God desires you to be saved. He doesn't begrudge it. He doesn't have his arm twisted by Jesus dying on the cross, so he kind of has to let you in. He desires you. His character is one of desiring all people to be saved. We can imagine someone sat in the congregation as this letter is read out uh, in Ephesus. Uh, He puts his hand up as Timothy reads the letter and says, just a minute, Timothy. Uh, I remember Paul's last letter. We call it the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, In his last letter, if I remember correctly, in chapter 1 and verse 11... They didn't have verses in those days, but let's go with it. In chapter 1, verse 11, Paul told us that God works everything out in accordance with his will. Chapter 1, verse 11, God works everything in accordance with his will, i.e. everything God wants to happen, happens. And now he's told us that he desires all people to be saved in chapter 2 of this letter. So, says the guy with his hand up, everyone's going to be saved. Brilliant. Everyone's going to heaven. What do you say? It's there in verse 4. God desires, God wants. It's the same sort of word, wills. He did, there's nothing kind of funny going on with the Greek underneath it. It's not one of those ones where the preacher says, oh, well, if you just knew Greek, you'd... No, no, no. God wants everyone to be saved. How do we explain it? Has Paul contradicted himself as he changed his mind? As he gets older, as he got softer? That sometimes happens. People are kind of radical with the gospel when they're younger, and by the time they get older and friends start dying who don't seem to be Christians, they just sort of tone it down a bit and, well, maybe everyone ends up in heaven in the end. No. Uh, Even within this own letter, in chapter 4 and verse 1, he talks about those who depart from the faith. So even within 1 Timothy, there are those who don't end up saved. But also we need to understand that the Bible uses the language of God willing or wanting, God's will, in two different ways. Uh, Sometimes it talks about what, what... I suppose theologians have called God's hidden will and sometimes his revealed will. His hidden will and his revealed will. Now, his hidden will is the one that Ephesians 1.11 is talking about. That's his will that just will happen. So our guy with his hand up in the congregation is exactly right. Uh, God has said that everything is under his control. He plans the end from the beginning. Every day of our lives is written down before one of them comes to be. Okay, nothing catches God by surprise. That's not a surprise. Uh, given what we've already read, it, read about God in, in chapter 1 of verse 17, he's the king of the ages, king of time. He's not stuck moving day to day like us, wondering what's going to happen tomorrow, what will happen next Wednesday. No, he's above everything. He's the king of the ages. So God's hidden will is what just will happen. Sometimes he's told us what that's going to be, sort of big picture. So one day Jesus is going to come back. But, but the reason it's called hidden is because basically I don't know what most of it is. What is God's plan for you next Thursday? You might have a stab. Well, I think probably I'll just go to work again. But you're not sure, are you? Because he's not told you. Now, he knows. And it will happen. He knows his plan for your marriage, for your children. He knows the day of your death. But he's not going to tell you. This is hidden will. But there's another way the Bible talks about God's will, which is... Uh, what, what comes to be called his revealed will. And this, if you like, is what God wants to happen but will not force to happen. So in that category, you might put uh, something like the, well, the commandments. You know, don't commit adultery. Does God want you to commit adultery? No. Is it possible to commit adultery? Yes. God doesn't force everyone to remain faithful. Uh, it's called revealed because he's told us. And that's what we're meant to be obsessed with. We're not meant to be obsessed trying to second guess what his plan is. You know, working out the name of our future spouse or whatever that he's hidden from us. 
We're meant to obsess with his open will. What does he want? He's told us how he wants us to live, his desires, and that's what we're meant to get on with. So imagine two angels, children. I want you to imagine two angels sat on the clouds as Jesus is carrying the cross, okay, up the hill. He's just about to be crucified. And the two angels, they're junior angels, they're young angels, they're just learning, okay. Uh, and, and the teacher says to them, look, is it God's will that, that Jesus is about to be killed? Does God want Jesus to be killed? And the first angel says, no, of course not. He, he's read the Old Testament, he's read, do not murder. And those soldiers are about to murder Jesus, so it's not God's will. And the second angel says, well, just a minute, I've been reading Isaiah. And Isaiah says that Jesus will be pierced for our transgressions bruised for our iniquities. So Isaiah told us that Jesus will die. God has planned for Jesus to die. Now, which angel is right? They're both right. It was a wrong thing to kill Jesus, but it was always part of God's plan. Now, why all that? Why the theology? It's to keep us safe when we come to 1 Timothy and verse 4. God desires all people to be saved. That is not a text that tells us everybody ends up in heaven, but it is a text that reveals to us God's character, if you like. He is not a God who turns people away who want to come to salvation. He is not a God who takes pleasure in throwing people away from himself. He is not a God either of exclusivism. I only want Jewishly descended people to be saved. I only want middle-class English people to be saved. I only want people with a university education to be saved. I only want white people to be saved. I only want Europeans to be saved. No, he's a God of all people. He desires his character, his, remember that open-handed one? His revealed will is that we all come to salvation. Whatever your temperament, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your background, God wants you in his family, in the church. Now, maybe no one else ever has. It's, it's, we live in a sad world, isn't, don't we? Some of us have never been wanted particularly. Even our own family have alienated us. We feel alone in the world, but God desires you to join him. And so, well, if you're a Christian, pray. When you're praying for people to, to, to come to faith, that's what this knowledge of the truth is talking about. You're praying in line with God's will, in line with God's desire. You're not praying against the grain. Sometimes we, we think, well, prayer just doesn't work, does it? Well, there's mystery involved. God doesn't answer every prayer, certainly. But God wants people to be saved. John Calvin said, to, to pray for men is the most powerful and practical way in which we can express our love for them. If you really want to love people, Jesus' command, love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. If you really want to love people, particularly those who aren't Christians, pray for them. Because God alone can save. So our duty is to pray. God's desire is to save all. And finally, in verses 5 to 7, Christ's death provided a ransom for all. Christ's death provided a ransom for all. Look at verse 5. He wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth for because there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The reason God wants everyone to come to know the gospel is there's only one way to heaven. There's only one God 
And in case we think, okay, well, there's one God, but we will call him different names. Some people call him Allah. Some call him uh, Jesus. Some call him Shriva. Some call him Vishnu. Some call him Zeus. Some call him Jupiter. And we can all get to him our different ways. Paul clarifies, no, there's only one mediator between God and man. Only one way to get to him. It might be worth saying, particularly if you're not a Christian, that that might sound incredibly kind of arrogant. You're claiming you're the only ones who've got the truth. There's a missionary called Leslie Newbegin, who was a bishop who went out to uh, India in the 20th century. And for a long time, he would preach this this Christian gospel. and, And people would come to him and say, look you've got part of the truth. What you've got to understand is that um, you're only seeing a little bit of the truth, and it's arrogant of you to claim you see the whole truth. And he said the story that kept getting told to him was about an elephant. Uh, and he, these guys would come to him and say, look, uh, you, you Christians, in fact, same as you Hindus or you Jews or you Muslims, you're like blind men. And one of you gets the elephant's trunk and says, well, the, an elephant is sort of long and, and sort of wiggly and bendy. Another one gets hold of the tusk and says, no, an elephant is hard and, and firm and pointy. And another one gets hold of the leg and says, no, no, an elephant is like a tree trunk. And, and, and actually, you've all got a little bit of the truth. But it'd be arrogant of you to claim you could really see the whole picture. And Newbegin said it, it used to floor him, and he'd feel terrible. You know, he said, I know I, I am preaching the truth, but, but, but I, I feel the weight of their argument. I am being arrogant, saying I... And then he realised that actually, the arrogant one was the person who said I can see that all you other religions have only got part of the truth but I can see clearly in other words to even be able to tell that story you have to claim that you can see that you can see that the the Muslims the Hindus the Christians the Jews that every other religion on earth are basically blind but you can see the whole picture secularism essentially is just as arrogant if not more so than any religion that claims exclusive truth. And Paul is claiming exclusive truth here. There is one God and one mediator. A mediator is a go-between. If you buy a house, the estate agent is the mediator. It goes between the, the person selling and the person buying. Uh, Jesus is the only one who can get us into heaven, into God's household. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who can go between God and man. What? Because he is God and man. Uh, the mediator, the rescuer, had to be God because it's God we offended. Children, if I come to you and I steal your sweets, steal all your sweets, all your chocolate Easter eggs, and then your sister says, don't worry, John T, I forgive you. What do you think? What do you think? It's not your job to forgive. He stole my sweets, my chocolate. Or similarly, we sin against God. And so only God could rescue us. But the rescuer had to be a man as well. This man, Christ Jesus. Christ is God, but he's also a man. Why? Because there was a ransom to be paid, verse 6, a price to be paid. And no one else could pay it. It had to be one of us who paid it. There are lots of sinless beings in the world, aren't there? The angel Gabriel is sinless. The archangel Michael is sinless. A billion other angels you can think of, or not think of because we don't know their names, but lots of sinless beings. But they can't die for us. Even God himself, just God as God, couldn't die for us. He had to take on flesh, to use the Bible's language. He had to become one of us. And that shows how great his desire is to save. In that sense, Jesus is more than a go-between. It's not that he scuttles between God and man negotiating a truce. He is God and man. He is both parties. In Jesus, to use the phrase of Thomas Goodwin, an old Puritan, heaven and earth meet and embrace. So if you worry that God doesn't really want you in heaven, just, just look at Christ. 
He, he is bound, God has bound humanity to himself. It's so much as he wants human beings to be saved that he has become human. Inseparably, forever. And not that that becoming flesh, coming to earth itself was enough to save. Verse 6, he had to give himself as this ransom. There was a price that needed paying. Ultimately, uh, death. It wasn't just that Christ became man and therefore anyone who kind of liked him could come into his house. No, he had to give his life to pay the penalty, the price for sin. You can't push that picture too much. It's not that he has to sort of give money to the devil to set us free or something. Sometimes people have done weird and wonderful things. But that that word in verse 6, give himself as a ransom, it's a made-up word, the ransom word. It's literally something like a substitute ransom. He puts himself where we should have been and pays the price for our sin which is ultimately our death and facing God's judgment. We needed to pay the price, but God came and paid it for us so that all men might be saved. Again, not saying that everyone will go to heaven, but so that the gospel offer can go out to all men. This is why in verse 7, Paul says, look, I'm a preacher, a teacher of the Gentiles. See the emphasis there on the non-Jews in contrast to chapter 1, where the, the false teachers are saying it's just Jews only. There's only one way. Christ died so that all the different nations could come in. So, as we close, what do we do? We pray for all. If there's only one way in, there's only one front door to God's house, pray that people would find it. Pray that God would bring them in. Don't begin to think. It's so easy, isn't it? It'll just sort of work out in the end. You know, you know, my aunt's a nice person, so I, I'm, I'm sure at the end of the day, God will just let them in. So God is clear, the only way is through Christ. If your prayers lack zeal, you just don't really pray much for people to be saved. Ultimately, it's because you don't share, we don't share God's heart for the lost, Christ's passion to rescue them and bring them in. It's as if the, the invite has gone out to everybody. Imagine you're getting married and you're wealthy enough to have servants. So you write all the invites out and then say, look, go and deliver these to all these people in the village. I want everyone in the village to be invited. You give them to your servant. And on the wedding day, there's only about 10 people there. And you say, well, where's Bob, the fishmonger? Okay, where's Jack, the ironmonger? And the servant says, well, I, I didn't think they were the right sort of sorts to be invited in. How arrogant. It's not our job to decide who's in and who's out, who we invite, who we don't. You invite who the master invites. God's house is to be a house of prayer. Do you see the chain in 1 Timothy? God's desire leads to Christ's death and that motivates our duty. So if we're lacking in prayer, what do we do? We don't just write pray in our diaries every morning. We don't just get a book on you know, how to pray more effectively. What we need to do is come closer to God again, repent and see his love that brought us in. Christ's death that paid the penalty for us. It's as we draw closer to God, see his desire and Christ's death, that that will motivate us to pray. In Christ's day, God's house had become a den of robbers. A den of robbers, not where people did robbing, but where they fled afterwards to hide out. Wouldn't it be terrible if that's what church was like? We had no concern for loss, no prayers, no concern for them, but we gathered together week by week to pat ourselves on the back, that we're part of God's people. No, says Paul, first of all, prayers, intercessions for all people. Let's be a house of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess we have fallen far short here. 
and that our hearts don't beat as yours do with a concern, a desire to see all people saved. We pray that you would grow in us a passion to see Christ honoured to the ends of the earth, a love for those who don't yet know the truth. Uh, Give us with our master Christ that gracious truthfulness. And might we be meek and humble, but confident with the gospel truth. And we do ask that through our prayers, uh, you bring the nations in to worship Christ. Make us, we pray, a prayerful people. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.